One of the most difficult parts of the Bible to understand is towards the end because it says that Jesus is coming back. And John the Apostle is doing his very best to try and describe heaven while being limited to earthly terms. And so sometimes it can seem a little weird and confusing, but he's just doing his best. But his main point is clear. Jesus will return. And the only reason I believe that is because Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. It's one of the most well-documented events in all of human history. And when someone can predict and pull off their own resurrection, if they say that they're coming back, I'm just going to believe that they're coming back. But the thing about Jesus' return is that it says in the book of Revelation that it's not going to be as a baby in a manger like the first time, that this time he's showing up, as it says, in all of his glory. Now, we're not exactly sure what all that means, but I will just tell you it's described as a lot of light and a lot of power. And we're told that when he returns, every single person, Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, skeptic, every single person is going to spontaneously fall on their face before him because it's going to be just so overwhelming. In fact, there's a moment in the book of Revelation where John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples and followers, one of his closest friends who followed him around for three years, and yet when he sees Jesus in his glory, he immediately falls down on his face, terrified. And John says it doesn't matter whether you're someone who's chosen to believe and follow him or if not. If you've chosen him, great. If not, the time for choosing is over. But either way, his glory, his power, his person is completely overwhelming. Now, the awesome thing is that every once in a while, uh, I believe even for those who aren't yet God followers, because I feel like this is one of the ways that God works to get our attention and show himself. But for sure, if you're a God follower, uh, every now and then, And if you pay attention, God reveals a little bit of himself in your life with just a little bit of glory and just kind of our little day-to-day lives. Every once in a while, he just kind of shows up in our life in an unmistakable way. And when he does that, the response inwardly, maybe outwardly even, is sort of like we see in the book of Revelation. It's just like, wow. And I have actually had this happen at least three times just within the past three weeks, which you need to know is much more frequent than normal. But uh, most of you, again, you were here or you had a chance to watch online what I shared last Sunday about just reaching a very dark and scary point three weeks ago and what's happening after Easter. And if you weren't here, you haven't had a chance to watch or listen to that, you really need to. Uh, If you don't have the link, make sure we've got your contact information. We'll get that to you. But Friday, March 3rd, uh, I hit bottom. So that was Friday. The following Tuesday, I was in Starbucks when a fellow area pastor, Nick Martineau of Hope Community Church, this is actually Nick and his amazing family, Uh, I've known him for years, but he happened to walk in, he just happened to walk in to kill some time because he had like 45 minutes before he needed to pick up his daughter from school and he saw me and he came up and he started talking to me at this high top table. I had reached out to him recently about some advice about something. I caught him up to speed with my situation, how after Easter I was going to be taking a 60-day sabbatical just to completely disconnect and refresh mentally and spiritually. That among other things, I hope to spend a week in uh, silence and solitude and prayer and rest at, a, of all places, a Benedic- Benedictine monastery in the desert of New Mexico. So talk about unplugged. Uh, but after briefly talking with him, he shared some encouragement, said, hey, I want you to you know, keep me in the loop as to how things are going. Then he went off to order his coffee. I kind of went on to what I was doing. Uh, but about 30 minutes later, he walked back over and he kind of leaned against my table. He said, okay, listen, my executive pastor and I have been talking 
And we just love and we believe in you, and we love and believe in new life. And so we want to be a partner in your sabbatical. So we're contributing $2,000 towards it for you to use any way you want. Whether it's uh, yeah, going to see your children, all of our adult children are coast to coast, or to cost to go to the monastery, it's just entirely up to you. And I just sat there in shock looking at him. And then, of course, because I'm me, I teared up and I hugged him. And right after that, he left and it hit me. Our crossing paths that afternoon was no accident, that God had just showed up. But maybe you go, that's coincidence. Well, then a few days later, I got a random text from a friend in Illinois that I haven't spoken to in a decade. And all he said in this text message was, how is life, fam, ministry? Because we guys, we can communicate shorthand, get it? So, to which I responded, okay, my first question is, did you just feel prompted to reach out to me or did a mutual connection bring me up to you? And his response was just prompted. And I just sat there staring at my phone in disbelief. And I started laughing. I'm like, God, you've got to be kidding me. And then my old friend and I, who hadn't spoken for over a decade, we spoke at length on the phone. It was powerful. And then, a few days later... I got another random text from someone I hadn't spoken to in 15 years. She had been one of my interns at a larger church in Illinois who I ended up, uh, she had been one of my interns, I ended up hiring her to take over our small groups department. She's still in full-time ministry, and after 15 years with no contact, her out-of-the-blue message just simply read, at a conference tonight and feeling thankful for the chance you took to put me in leadership. Thank you. And again, I just laughed and the tears, I just stared at my phone because one such incident could just be written off as coincidence. Two gets your attention, but three, within just a few one, days of each other when I needed it the most, and I just dropped to my knees, and I just thank God for showing up when I needed him most. Because when God shows up, when God answers a prayer, he offers you some sort of unmistakable reassurance that he's near, that he knows, that he cares, and he intervenes for you, maybe financially, maybe relationally, maybe physically, maybe it saves your life, maybe something just wonderful happens in your life that makes no logical sense, but suddenly you are keenly aware, oh my God, God has shown up in your little life. And when that happens, you realize it, it's overwhelming. Probably most of you have had at least one experience like this in your life. And if you haven't, you will. It's going to come. And in fact, the Bible says that eventually it is going to happen for all of us because Jesus is coming back and we are all going to have that big wow experience. Now, what's that got to do with us? Everything. Because... Because in this series, the core prayer of this series has been, 
God, help us to see others as you see them and burden us with the things that burden you. And we've been learning from a man named Nehemiah as to what it looks like to have and to live with a driving God-given vision for our lives. Nehemiah had this vision to rebuild some walls that had been broken down for almost 150 years. And in 52 days, he and the people that he rallied together to do this, to do what everyone else could never be done, they accomplish it. They rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And then you would just kind of expect the book of Nehemiah to end. I mean, the whole focus of the book is let's get the wall rebuilt. They get the wall rebuilt. They have this huge party, this huge celebration, and then they just all go back to their hometowns. But when they got home, the adrenaline started to wear off. And they're sitting there in their homes, and it started to sink in. Oh, my goodness, that, that was God. As they sat in their houses, only then did it all begin to make sense and almost spontaneously. It's so fascinating. Nobody organized them. Nobody called an event. No, and they just simply on their own. They just sort of wander out of their houses and they start this stunned walk back to Jerusalem. And I imagine them walking back and seeing these walls that are now in place after a century and a half. And they just gather in the town square and they're just overwhelmed with the fact that God had clearly shown up in their midst and this is verse 73 at the very end of chapter 7. We're told the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their town. But after a little time, so it's referring to when it was done and they partied and then they go home. After a little time, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And then they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Now, generally, women did not gather with men, but they were so sensitive to the fact that God had done a miracle right in front of their eyes. They just didn't care. And so they say, Ezra, like, bring out, bring out the law of God, bring out the Bible, basically, and just read it. Where should I start? We don't care. Just come read it. Because what they had experienced birthed in them an insatiable hunger for more. More of God and a hunger for His Word. So Ezra, he comes out and he just begins to read. In verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So here's the picture. Thousands of people, they just come wandering in from all the surrounding areas into the city square. And Ezra comes out for half a day. You think I go long. Okay, so he, uh, half a day. And they're just like, just keep reading, just keep reading. Because God had touched down in an almost tangible, observable way. And as a result, they became very attentive to what was going on spiritually. So picture this in your mind. Thousands of people of all ages, they're just sitting there quiet in the dirt and on the stones, and they've got their eyes on Ezra. He steps up onto this makeshift stage so that they could all see, and there's this huge scroll. So flashing back before he started teaching, so it's just quiet, he opens the scroll, and as he opened it, the people just all stood up. I mean, just imagine the power of this moment. Now, why did they stand? Because they were convinced that God had shown up and that these are His words contained in the scroll for us. 
Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, which means so be it. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Why did they do that? Because again, nobody had to tell them to do it because they'd experienced something unmistakably God. It was so unmistakably God that they were moved. And this was just their natural response. And then verse 7 gives us a list of uh, names of men. And we're told that they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So basically, they sort of began to preach. And then in verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, which we'll explain a little bit later. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And we need to understand, these people did not have Bibles. They didn't have the text. I mean, in fact, many of these people had probably never heard anything out of God's Word. And this whole Build the Wall campaign, it had been about civil, it had been about social, it had been about protection. It was not a religious thing. But yet, God had shown up and they knew it. And suddenly they are hungry for spiritual information and spiritual understanding. So these men begin teaching and teaching the people they just can't get enough. And the reason why they begin crying is because they realize how far from God that they had been. But even how in spite of that, God had shown up. And, and if you're a God follower, at some point, you're going to experience this as well. You're going to experience a point in your life where God shows up in such a real way. And afterwards, it's going to hit you that in spite of all the ways that you fall short, in all the ways I fall short, God still decided to show up in my life. And you're just overwhelmed. And with Nehemiah, it gets even better. In verse 13, on the second day of the month, so this is the very next day, The heads of the families, along with the priests and the Levites, they gather around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. So they're back for more. They found written, and in the Hebrew, it's kind of like they kind of stumbled on this. They just accidentally discovered this. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during a festival of the seventh month. And this was the seventh month when this was being read. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout all the towns of Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees and make temporary shelters as it is written. Now, what this is referring to is when God led the Israelites out of Egypt hundreds of years before this, God knew that one day the Israelites were going to have towns and cities and money and houses and nice homes, and they were going to be financially a very blessed nation. And he knew that the generations that followed this first generation that came out of Egypt, that they would forget where they had come from and what God had done in their midst. So God's like, look, during this particular time of year, every year, Everybody's to go out and get the go out into the woods, get all these different kinds of branches, come back and, and in your front yard, build a little hut or a little booth, and then live in it. Live in it for a week as a reminder of what I did for you. And then as you look at your big five-bedroom house from your booth, you'll think, wow, like isn't it isn't God good? Because my ancestors, they had to live like this out in the wilderness in in booths and shelters like this. And look what God has done for us. And it was to help remind the people of God's provision and all that he had done for them and how far he had brought them. Well, this was not a convenient holiday. 
Oh, like Passover? We like. I mean, we get to eat a lot and everything, but Feast of Booths, I mean, you know, I, I got shade inside. It's more comfortable. Like, let's skip that. God had told them to do this. It was an ongoing, to be an ongoing reminder of his faithfulness and power, but they ignored it. So consequently, they forgot. They forgot his faithfulness, just like God knew that they would. But now, here, these, here, here they are. And these people, most of these people, they, they'd never heard of this. They knew nothing about this. And it gets to this part where it says, and on this week of this particular month, you're to build a hut. Everybody goes, all right, time out. Stop right there. That's this month. So the people just, they just left. They went out and they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their roofs and in the courtyards and the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. And from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, this is the Joshua from hundreds of years previous. From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had never celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Now, don't miss this. They're listening to Ezra reads God's, read God's word. He gets to this part that on this particular month and this particular week, you're supposed to live in a booth. It's like, everybody to the booths. Let's go. They just spontaneously just go out to get branches. Nobody is going, no, okay, wait, booths. I mean, maybe this is a theological thing. I mean, maybe it didn't mean it literally. It's just like, these people are just so overwhelmed with the presence of God that their answer is, yes, God. Now, what's the question? You know, uh, yes, I'll do it. What do you want me to do? I mean, this unconditional surrender. And then in verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Now, in all of this, we see a principle that is woven throughout Scripture. That when God intervenes, it results in two things. It results in authentic worship and unquestioned obedience. That you, when you finally get to the point that you decide to not just believe in God, but to truly live for God, to live for something bigger than yourself, God will show up. He will intervene in such a way that you can't miss him. And when that happens, and it will happen, it results in this spontaneous, natural, authentic worship and unquestioned obedience. It's just a cause and effect thing. And again, I have experienced this even recently. It's just a natural response when God shows up in your personal life, when there's this clear answer to prayer, when God reveals himself in, 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 in some other way, nobody has to tell you, you know, you really ought to be grateful. Or, you know, maybe you really ought to pray more. Or you really ought to read more. What, read your Bible more. When God shows up in an unmistakable way, what is birthed in, birthed in you is an insatiable hunger for more of God. I want more of this. I want to see him show up more. And you are more hungry for his word. And you become a different pe person. And these people, they experienced a revival. Not because of preaching. But they experienced it because their vision to rebuild this wall was the avenue through which God revealed himself in an unmistakable way. And at the end of the whole deal, they weren't celebrating a wall. They were celebrating God. Do you know what God wants to do in your life and mine? He wants you and I to get a firm picture 
of what could be and should be, but what cannot be apart from him. And then he wants us to go after it with all of our heart because he wants the opportunity to step in and fill in the gaps and fill in that part that is beyond us so that we can experience him. And when all is said and done, our worship will be like it has never been before. And as a church, we have the opportunity to fully surrender to our lives in such a way to see people as he sees them and to be concerned with the things that he is concerned about and to go after people and to go after those things with all of our might. And if you do and if we do, we will get the experience and the thrill of being able to look back and see how God showed up in the areas where we are weak and incapable and we will be, be in awe and experience the joy of being a part of what God was doing and experiencing purpose. When you give God your all and He shows up in the gaps, you know what happens to your worship? You don't worship because it's time to or you ought to or that's what we do on Sunday morning and some leader on stage says it's time to sing. You'll worship God because you can't help it for what He's done and not for just for what He's done. You'll worship Him for who He is And you don't just obey God anymore because of what you get out of it. Suddenly, you're obeying God is just because He's God. See, a a measure of your spiritual maturity and mine is the degree to which we worship and obey God based on who He is as opposed to what we get out of it. See, there's this exchange that happens when we are so given to something that it can't happen unless He intervenes. And then our faith intersects with His faithfulness. And as was the case with the wall, our lives are changed at that intersection. It's God, this is what I want to see happen in my marriage, but it can't happen without you. This is what I want to see happen in my singleness, but without you, there is no way. God, this is what I want to see happen with my kids but if, if, if you're not in this, it's not going to happen. God, this is what I want to see happen in this relationship or this job or with this person I love or this group of people. God, I'm willing to commit my all, but God, I'm telling you, if you don't show up and do your part, it's not going to happen. And God says, I like those odds. And we just keep doing our part. And in His timing, He will do His. And when He does, it's just amazing You see, this is why if you would say you're a Christian, you cannot just kind of lollygag around and have maybe a little quiet time randomly here, maybe there, a little prayer on the go now and then, you know, and just show up and sing songs and listen to a talk. Listen, I'm I'm telling you this because I care so much about you. If that's the extent of your Christianity, here's what I can promise you. You will miss God. You will never truly experience God in your life. And you'll never know or get to experience what the God of the universe would have done in and through you. And your spiritual life will just kind of plod along. If you're a Christian, a Jesus follower, I asked this question just a few weeks ago. Is there anything in your Christian life right now that demands courage from you? Because if not, it is the perfect time to rethink your walk with God 
and your priorities as it connects to his kingdom and to this community. Another way of asking it is what are you trusting to God to what are you trusting God to do in and through you that affects people other than you and other than your family members? Because if you're a Christian, you're just going to get in a rut. It'll just be the same old day after day thing and think, and it'll just be God, you know, thank you for this day and protect me and protect the loved ones I love and bless them. Amen. And you can go years as a Christian and have God never show up because he doesn't need to. Because you're not looking for him to, because you're not expecting anything, because you're not doing anything big enough to where he's needed. Because let's be honest, I'm with you. Most of us, we got into this God and Christian thing for purely selfish reasons, right? Like, most of us, you know, we, like, I didn't become a Christian because it was like, oh God, you are so great and so glorious and I just want to, you know, you deserve my all. No, that wasn't it at all. I was taught that putting my faith in Jesus would make it so that I could go to heaven and not go to hell. And I was thinking, I don't want to go to hell. Not a tough decision. At the same time, I also believe that somehow following Jesus would make my life better and make me better at life. I like that. That's why I became a Christian. Purely selfish reasons. You know why they built this wall? They didn't rebuild this wall to restore some, you know, grandeur to Israel and so that it will be a pillar and a light to the Gentiles. They just wanted a wall. They just wanted to restore their nation. I mean, their reasons and their motives were selfish. But God was using it even though they didn't realize it. And God says, it's okay. Like, I'll just start where you're at. That's a starting point. And you can start off purely selfish and self-centered. That's okay. But hold on. Because I love you too much to leave you there. And I've got something bigger. And eventually, if you decide to be more than just a believer in and decide to be a follower of Jesus... God takes us from our self-centered, self-oriented, boring, lifeless Christianity, and he will take us to a point where we are suddenly certain, we're no longer serving and worshiping and obeying because of what we get out of it, or because we're, gonna, we're afraid of what God might do if we mess up. Rather, we obey and we worship just because of who he is. And Paul, he quoted the prophet Isaiah when he wrote this. He wrote, Someday, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Someday. And, and, and you know what this is? I know for most of you it's a digital form on your phone now, but there's a paper version. This is story after story of God showing up. God's showing up and doing great things in the lives of people who trust him and follow him. It's also story after story of people who totally miss the opportunity for something great and the chance to experience God on earth because they lack trust or they don't simply, or they simply put God on a shelf until they need him or there's a crisis. And something interesting that's in the New Testament is that we're told that Jesus was only amazed by two things. Great faith and little faith. Author Gene Edwards once wrote, Beginning empty-handed and alone frightens the best of men. It also speaks volumes of just how sure that they are that God is with them. And my driving desires for every one of you is for you to experience 
God. To experience God in an unmistakable way in this life, that's what I want for you. That's why I challenge you all the time to serve, to give, to invest in, to be generous with others outside of these walls, through the week, in your workplace, in your classroom, and at the same time to support, to invest in the work of this church. In fact, six weeks ago, I I presented a challenge, uh, specifically in the area of giving and generosity. I pointed out that the average American, Christian and non-Christian, gives an average of 2.5% of their income. But as Christians, we have not been called to be average. We've been called to excel. I asked you to do the math of your giving to the local church if the percentage ended up at 2.5% or less to make it 5% or more. And if you were giving 5% or more but less than 10 to just to add at least 2% with the goal of getting to at least 10 just by the end of 2023. Put God to the test. Call his bluff. I got uncomfortably transparent with you about Uh, I shared how over the past six years, what my wife and I, how we priority percentage given to new life. I shared the total. But once again, to assure you that I don't ever give challenges, which I myself am not challenging myself, I want you to know that since that time, my wife and I, we've increased our giving by 10%. uh, And together, we decided that I would take an $800 a month reduction in my pay package for three months. Because we are in this with you. And we want to see God show up more and more in all that he wants to do in and through this young, still rough around the edges church. And several of you, you responded to that as well. And I'm just so inspired by you. I'm so proud of you as a pastor and a friend. And I'm so pumped for the opportunity to get an unmistakable glimpse of what God wants to do in and through us in the months and the years to come. And as the pastor, as a pastor, I just have to say this next part. If you sit through opportunities and challenges like this and just think, you know, I just, I don't want to do that, so I'm not. You know what? First thing, that does not mean you're a bad person. (laughs) It doesn't mean there's no hope, not at all. But you need to know, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the greatest opportunity and what God might have done. You might end up like the rich young man who missed out on the greatest adventure in the history of the world because he prioritized his stuff over the opportunity to follow the literal Son of God while he was on this earth. This is an opportunity because this is a God thing. And we're, we're in it together. And you have an opportunity to kind of throw yourself in with your time and your skills and your resources and your talent to see what God will do. And if you don't act on it, you're going to miss out. So one more time, is there anything that you're involved in, anything that you're pursuing in your life, not just here on Sunday morning, that if God doesn't show up, that it's not going to happen? Is there anything that you're involved in with your time and your money that benefits someone other than your family? Are you praying towards anything? Do you have a picture in your mind of what could and should be with a person, with a people group, with an age group, with some sort of category of people, something that is forcing you to trust God more and more while doing all you know to do, knowing all the time that if God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen? Is there anything like that in your life? Because if the answer is no, then you are missing the opportunity to experience God in this life.
And I'm asking you to just start, maybe for the first time tonight, to just begin regularly getting on your knees and praying, God, help me to see people the way you see them. May my concerns be your concerns. And then give me a vision for what you're calling me to do about it. Give me a glimpse of what you want to see happen in and through my life. And God, I'm not just going to sit back and pray about it. I'm going to commit myself with both hands and both feet because I am looking to experience you. Because when your faith and his faithfulness intersect, boom. Something happens on the inside of you. And you know what? That's the kind of church that I want to be a pastor of. That's the kind of church that I want my family in. That's the kind of church that I want your kids and your grandkids and your nieces and nephews to grow up seeing. As the band comes up, we have an important, and it's more than just a visual reminder of God's faithfulness and of who we follow. Uh, it's deeper than that. But when we experience communion, like we're about to experience together, it's this tangible, hands-on reminder of Jesus leading the way, of showing what it looks like to lean into courage and trusting God with the results, to trust God and what His calling on, a, on an individual's life, knowing that to get to the other side of it is going to require cost and sacrifice. It's going to require courage and not just believing in something, but taking action with that belief. It's a reminder that should shape all of our lives. And so my hope for us today is that communion today would be just both a reminder to us and an inspiration for us to just regularly pray, God, like Jesus, cause me to see others like you see them and to be burdened with the things that you're burdened and what you want me to do about about it, no matter what the cost. And so my prayer for all of us who would call ourselves a, a Christian, a Christ follower, as the author of Hebrews says, that we would have the ability to fix our eyes on Jesus and not all the other distractions around us, all the things that might cause us fear or to hold back on what God is calling us to do outside the walls of this building, but that we would be inspired by Jesus as our leader, who led the way to show what's on the other side. When you trust God, trust Him with the parts that you can't answer, how's this going to work out? And the amazing thing on the other side of it. The Apostle Paul went around and planted churches all over the Mediterranean Rim. One of the greatest testaments to that Jesus really was who He said He was because He went from being a one-man destroyer of the church to the premier missionary church planter that has ever lived. And to this young church in Corinth, he's explaining what communion was because it got passed on to him because he wasn't there. And he says, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said that this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he said those words, they had no clue what he was talking about. It would not be until the next day and then after that Sunday. And then in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant 
there was the old covenant. We're celebrating Passover, but there's now a new covenant that's coming. And it's in my blood. And do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Which again, you have to remember, they had no clue what he was talking about until the next day. He said, when you do this, you proclaim my death until I return. So I'm always humbled when we get to take communion because I realize this is one of the very few acts that we get to do on a planet that connects us to generations through centuries. Imagine the men and women and young people through the generations that pass this on and here this morning that we get to experience it. So if, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, then I'm going to pray and then when you're ready, Maybe you want to stay in your seat, take an opportunity to pray that prayer that we've just been drumming on the whole several weeks, or you just got something else going on in your life, and before you take communion, you just want to process with God, uh, whatever. Um, we've got four stations to my left and right, and just you can go, and you can take it right there. You can take it, go off to the side. You can take it, bring it back to your seat, take it as a family. You do whatever you want. There's no rules, okay? Um, and then just come back to your seat, and then uh, we'll, we'll close the service. You're not a Christian or a Jesus follower. Don't don't feel pressured to follow the herd. And we're just glad that you're here. We created this church with you in mind. Um, I'm going to pray, and if and when you're ready, you just go take communion, and then we'll sing, and we're going to close. Father, I just thank you so much for the chance to gather today. I thank you so much for the knowledge of your Son. And we have no idea why you chose to reveal it to us, but you did, and we're just grateful. And Father, I'm just so glad that we have the text that we have and the stories that have been passed down by witnesses to us so that we can look to Jesus and see those that followed them and see their example of the courage that they demonstrated. God, we're just, we just acknowledge that sometimes we're just so coward, so, so cowardly. We're afraid that if we bring up our faith or whatever, that somehow somebody might decide they don't want to talk to us anymore, decide we're weird. God, we're just cowards. So I pray for all of us, Father, that you would turn that around, that you cause us to be courageous, that like you did in the day of Nehemiah and Jesus and, and so many others and generations that have come before us, that you, we would see you and experience you in tangible, real ways in our life, and we would feel your nearness and see it and take courage from it. We thank you for this communion that has been passed through an entire spiritual family tree back to Jesus himself, and that we get to experience it together. So, Father... This moment is all about your son with whom you were pleased, well pleased, and whom you loved. And for most of us, if not all of us that are currently in the room, we, we seek to follow. And we call him our high priest, our sacrifice, and our friend. So this moment is all about you, and it's all about him and the price he paid. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.